0: May 40 here. It's a long time since I've seen a story grip people as much as this uh, submersible that uh, apparently suffered a massive implosion. And uh, Jean-Francois Garapie says white heterosexual men who have been rejected by a system to the benefit of affirmative action. Hiring practices must look at failures like that of the Titan sub and laugh their asses off about what science society will become without their contribution. Yeah, so the 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 man, the billionaire behind this sub, uh, very explicitly said he wasn't interested in the contributions of old white men. I'm a 57 year old white man, so people who demonise me, why why would I care about them? Right? If they if they want to crap on people like me, then you know why would I go to uh, try to bail them out, so to speak? And we've seen you know massive numbers of construction failures and other failures from diluting merit as a, a prime category so we've had uh, uh bridges that have been you know designed by women that have absolutely collapsed so someone who says oh, i'm tired of old white men you know screw old white men then uh, why should uh, those who believe in merit have have a positive attitude towards you
1: a wi-fi controller do you realize that it works until it doesn't work do you realize that when the establishment of the connection starts bugging and there's a problem of identification of the remote control, uh, things can totally stop working? I do not use a Wi-Fi controller for my gaming. I do not use any Wi-Fi material for my studio of video recording. My,
0: I've been using Wi-Fi headphones for a year. I had absolutely no problems with them. But uh, if your life is on the line, yeah, maybe Wi-Fi, not such a great idea.
1: Submarine at 4,000 meters deep, you don't use wireless for anything. Now, uh, it's worse than this. It's that the, the team that was responsible for this Ocean Gate Titan worse than this. were enlightened uh, renegades who were seeing themselves as doing something that was never done before. And you hear how the CEO brags that he didn't want to, to hire 50-year-old white guys because they're not inspirational. He says, you know, uh, we're, we're doing something that is so different. We're actually less inspired by the submarine business, but more inspired by space, space travel. Now, as the geek shows in his video, uh, they were not truly really uh, taking the lessons from the space world. This guy right here, a genius, apparently, of submarine, points to all of the flaws in the design. One of the flaws that he points toward is, well, this was a carbon fiber or fiberglass hull, so it's something that crashes and shatters instantly. when When it sh- When it fails, it fails big. So it's like either you you totally kill the billionaires inside in an instant or it works and and you get back to safety. Second flaw was the wireless control of the joystick, which he pointed out. There's all sorts of problems. The the problem of the connection stops. Do you have a replacement? Do you have a replacement that doesn't rely on Wi-Fi technology or Bluetooth? All of these questions are very important, absolutely important. Now, he also points that there was a refusal to engage uh, with the regular safety, the people with experience who turn out to be white, old guys, white 50-year-old guys. And we'll listen to how the CEO describes how he's looking for a team that is much fresher than this.
2: CEO of OceanGate, Mr. Stockton Rush had with Teledyne Marine representatives. Teledyne Marine are making the sonar systems and inertial navigation systems for this vessel. But listen to what he talks about. The CEO talks about hiring people.
3: Uh, yes, I mean, when I started business, one of the things you'll find, there are other sub operators out there, but they, they typically um, have uh, gentlemen who are ex-military submariners, and they you'll see a whole bunch of 50 year old white guys. Uh,
0: Yeah, and maybe... Uh, One of the things about woke culture is that there are sacred groups such as uh, blacks, gays, uh, the trans, uh, Jews, uh, other minority groups, they can never be criticized. And in an atmosphere where there are sacred groups that are above and beyond criticism, you don't get a lot of excellence.
1: If you discard these 50-year-old white guys, you are left with... A person operating the ship or constructing the ship that has zero experience in doing them. Perhaps the only available option are white guys coming from the military and you should hire them.
3: I wanted our team to be younger, to be inspirational, and I'm not...
1: (laughs) And the memes are coming out on Twitter right now. (laughs) People are showing someone being totally swallowed by the the depth of the ocean, but as he dies and is swallowed, he yells, I'm being, I'm inspired right now. (laughs) I'm inspired as fuck. Holy shit. Inspired because you hire females. Inspired because you hire young people with less experience. Inspired because apparently this team didn't feel like following the standards, following... The rules of uh, of the industry, and in fact, had been criticised that we've, as we've seen on the show yesterday, the industry had come out against them, and had said, "Look, these guys—they don't know what they're doing. They're they're thinking, they're innovating, but they're, they're going to make us look very bad. And now you look very bad indeed. Now you look very bad because you discarded the fifty-year-old white guys who could have helped you."
3: Not going to inspire a sixteen-year-old to to go pursue marine technology.
1: But now he's saying, "Well, we weren't really successful at getting sixteen-year-olds to be uh, fascinated by marine technology." But a
3: twenty-five-year-old, you know, who's a sub pilot or a a platform operator, one of our techs, can be inspirational. So we've
1: ah, so he looked for a twenty-five-year-old female to operate the platform that is in charge of delivering the vessel and recovering it. Now, so you got your, your 25 year old female. So that's inspirational. That will, that will lead uh, people to have confidence. Cute says Joe Blixom. Yes. The problem of cuteness is that when it comes to following the rules and learning from past experiences uh, a 25 year old will not have as much people were pointing out they're not anything but rich people with more money than they know how to spend your average saturation diver is closer to an underwater frontiersman than these tourists are they live in pods for 28 days working on the seafloor flirting with death on a daily basis yeah (laughs) this is the kind of guy the kind of guy who spends a whole month in these high depth environment for fixing huge pipelines or whatever it is that
0: so remember all those uh, Thai boys from a soccer team who got uh, got trapped right by what was it uh, a flood and so they, they were stuck in a cave right the entire Thai military, right? The best of Thailand, right? Couldn't save them. And Thailand's a huge country, right? It's got tens and tens of millions of people, right? But uh, all the best of Thailand couldn't save it. Like Thailand has 70 million people, but uh, they couldn't figure out how to rescue the boys. I had a couple of English divers who had expertise. They were able to figure out how to rescue the boys, and they did rescue the boys, right? So two old white English divers did what seventy eight million Thai could not
1: that they're doing. These guys are the real thing. These guys are the frontiersmen. I, I fully agree with this. The the other guys, the guys who crushed in the in the billionaire submarine, those are tourists. Those are tourists who are trying to do something spectacular and They're paying the price for it. And as I was saying earlier in the show, as a white guy, as a white guy who has high IQ, as a white guy who would have had definitely the level of intelligence to become an engineer, although I'm not an engineer, I'm tired of society rejecting people like me. And I will laugh my ass off every time you guys die under a female controller, under a diversity hierarchy. I will laugh my ass off when your planes catch fire, when your stairs don't work, and when your buildings crumble. I will fucking laugh my ass off and I don't give a shit. You guys have discarded from society the only people who who have been showing through history that they were capable of doing absolutely amazing things uh, of challenging the limits of history, of going where no one has gone. You have dismissed us because you want your little image, your little picture with the female controller of your fucking platform. You can fucking die under 4,000 feet of water. I don't give a shit. That is my attitude. You get what you fucking deserve. That is what we should retain from this experience. The-
0: And and why would you expect anyone to react differently, all right? You want to demonize a group such as white men, then why would you expect them to want to come to your rescue?
1: These billionaires, I'm not going to drop a tear for them. Now, as I was saying earlier, the saddest fucking thing is that one of these idiot rich businessmen has has brought his son on this ridiculous adventure. It's like when you are old it's okay to die. It's okay to take a massive risks and it's okay to be brave heart style going to war, putting yourself at threat, because when you die you're you're helping your children survive, you're helping your wife.
0: Okay, so JF Garapi makes some tough points, hard points, but I think ultimately fair and important points. All right, let's go to decoding the gurus, a Patreon only discussion here about how do you develop a good epistemic network
4: kind of lost it seems to me um and ah. so what i want to just man- mention though that like
3: i, I agree with you all about all the stuff that you're going to say about lost boys and whatever but i also want to make clear to michael that like i think it's perfectly possible to listen to sam harris agree with a whole bunch of he says and be a perfectly normal reasonable person yeah yeah I- yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no i'm <laughs> thinking of the
4: people <laughs> so yeah I just- oh, yeah no yeah i'm not saying that i'm saying that when sometimes i i recently i've been striking people with inexplicable things like like how like believing all the conspiracy theories basically thinking that the ukraine thing is a big scam and putin's a hero like like it's not it's not just one thing like listen to sam harris like it, it's which is i wasn't thinking of sam anyway but it, it's the constellation of weird beliefs and you know you can cast it as, as in a political dimension but actually these people are not it's it's not you can't understand it through politics you you have to understand it through a kind of conspiratorial psychological vulnerability yeah well, yeah, there, was a, there was um there was a book i read recently i, I don't know if you've read it it's by david mcgraney called how minds change and so um, i read that a little while ago and that combined with your podcast and talking uh with other experts in whatever field so the huberman for example i would speak to a physiotherapist or somebody in physical science but th- that combined seems to inoculate me pretty well and, and then occasionally one slips through and then i have to go into uh what i think i've, I've mentioned uh, i think i've heard you mention matt about having a network that you go out to to be able to then use that network to understand what on earth is going on in a particular area if you aren't an, aren't an expert. Um, and then I, I guess, uh, then I begin to think about all the other people that don't have that network, haven't read those books, aren't listening to you. And it makes me very sad. Yeah. 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 The epistemic network thing is I think really key to understanding it. Like, like you don't, the, the theme out like amongst the people that are into the discourse and free speech and open debate and we're going to figure this stuff out ourselves do your own research like they have this sort of heuristic that you know you're going to go you're going to go to the primary sources you're going to go through the data on, on whatever the topic is and you're going to you know use your big science brain to, to go through it look at the the, the um, atmospheric records in some antarctic monitoring station and figure out what's going on with climate change right and that's not how having an accurate worldview works right because there's is too much information knowledge pertinent stuff in the world and even a professional researcher professional scientist cannot there's not enough hours in the day, right, to go through all that shit. Everyone has to specialize. So, so the way to have accurate um, worldviews, I think, is, is all about ha- maintaining a healthy epistemic network. So that- okay,
0: so what are the components of a healthy epistemic network? Epistemic means how do we know what we know? So how can you discern what is true from what is false? Well, the single most replicable study in social sciences is the predictive and explanatory power of IQ differences among groups. So different groups have different levels of IQ and their life results largely fall in alignment with these differences. And you can pretty much tell what someone's potential is by uh, by age five or six, giving them a Raven's matrices IQ test. And these two academics from decoding the gurus, they don't want regular people talking about IQ. They just want IQ left only to the experts who don't really talk about it publicly when it's the single easiest tool for understanding how the world works, but they don't want you to have it. So I would say that's really bad epistemics, like someone who wants to deny people the single most easy, predictive explanatory tool for understanding the world around them, right? The predictive power of IQ differences between groups, right? That's not someone who's particularly devoted to truth or to epistemics. We're talking here to academics, who put a far greater premium on their careers and on their personal comfort and just like feeling like they're righteous, right? While they pour scorn on those who notice obvious differences that different peoples have different gifts, right? Understanding that different peoples have different gifts, I think is kind of the basics for uh, beginning to understand the world around you. So you should give priority to theories and thinkers that uh, have, have, you know, replication, right? Such as different groups of different gifts, different levels of IQ will have different life outcomes, right? Uh, Different levels of IQ has both predictive and explanatory power. So there's no need to fear a challenge, right? The, The idea that different groups have different gifts, you can challenge that, you know, a million ways to Sunday. I'd be happy to, you know, take on those challenges. So your epistemic networks also should enable you and encourage you to develop the best possible relations with everyone as you're, epistemics improve meaning that your ability to discern what is true from what is false your life should improve if your life's not improving your ability to discern what is true from what is false is you know, not so good right you, you don't want your worldview to be based upon you know hot takes that get your juices flowing right something that just feels good and you know sounds really profound but falls apart upon analysis and right? that's not good epistemics you also have to understand that ties bind and blind. So it's great to belong to a community. You know, it's great to have ties. It's great to have allegiances, but you want to think clearly. You have to kind of step outside the dance, step outside of your ties, and try to look at things objectively. And everyone has a hero story, right? Understand the incentives that people work under. For example, if the people pushing climate change legislation, you know, have the same, you know, identical left wing agenda, even if there were no such thing as climate change, they'd still be pushing the this, this same left wing agenda control of their you know, people's choices and more power to big government, then you have to be appropriately suspicious of their claims. When you get an incredibly complicated topic like climate change, there are so many variables, there are so many areas of specialization, nobody is a master of uh, climate change science. Someone can't acknowledge basic truths such as different people's have different gifts, all right? They're they're not much use for understanding reality. If your fear of getting canceled forces you to deny the bleedingly obvious, the blindingly obvious, you're not much of a source for truth, right? 12-year-old boys can easily beat the greatest female athletes. So don't tell me how amazing women's sports are, that they deserve identical pay to higher performing men. If you can't acknowledge these basic significant differences between men and women, between different groups, I mean, you are of no use for understanding life, right? Back to decoding the group. So that's
4: And that's the hard bit, right? Because it involves figuring out what sources to trust and what sources to trust on what topics. Like as Chris sort of lightheartedly said, Elijah Kasky could be great on Harry Potter fan fiction, right? Like if that was the thing you wanted to figure out about. He could be a great source on that. Like not everyone's a great source on everything. And some people are a good source for a while and actually become a terrible source. Like that, who's that UK nurse guy? What's his name? Um, John, Campbell. John Campbell. John Campbell, yeah. Um. So... Yeah, so figure like. The, the good thing is, if you have a healthy epistemic network, and, some, and and maybe say John Campbell was in it, right? A source you trusted, right? And if the rest of your network's pretty good, then you will have the wherewithal to notice when he's bullshitting you, right? And and you can go right, he's not good. I'm going to drop him. But if you've got a bad epistemic network, right? You listen to Joe Rogan, you listen to these other people, and you trust all these people, then it all fits, right? You've got no reference point to figure out that it's bullshit. Um, so it's hard. It's really hard for people that um that are that are lost like that. I still though. I'm still, you know the i all
3: i spoke to like i said a a guy that's a jordan peterson fan and he was he was very reasonable and and uh and very decent having a conversation with but he he had that view about debates like he we ended up i think talking about climate change and he he wanted you know there to be a debate where you have an advocate for climate change and bjorn lomborg on the other side and then he's like you know if this is multiple hours and they go back and forth i'd be open to change my mind and it's just like that's a very i was trying to explain to him but like but that doesn't actually alter at all
0: the Right, that's uh, Chris Kavanaugh speaking there. And, and that's right. Debates are entertaining. They're not a, a good method for discerning what is true from what is false.
3: Evidence, right? Like it's not, that's, that's like a performance to be it. But the actual evidence exists completely independent from that discourse. But th- there was like, there's just a difference in heuristics because a lot of the way that he seemed to regard, you know, how you should formulate your views is through, you know, like kind of long form podcasts and debates. Whereas...
0: So heuristics means an approximation of, of truth like what are some basic heuristics so if you see a bunch of people running right in, in sheer fear and panic a good heuristic would be to join them because if there's you know a large enough group of people you know running away in fear and panic in, in all likelihood there's probably some rational reason to be running away in fear and panic so uh, heuristics means a, a method that yields a rough approximation of the truth and is reasonably effective yes.
3: Uh, that's that's a terrible heuristic for, for science, fine for entertainment. And I think with like Sam Harris or someone like that, I actually think there's stuff that Sam's good on and is a, a good speaker, kind of speaks clearly and thoughtfully about stuff. Um, and other people I would put in that category would include Pinker, Height, um so on. But they're also like, they all to some extent suffer from the the narcissism <laughs> aspect where they're really, really sure that their worldview and perspective on issues is like really clear. And, and what-
0: So a normal person doesn't yearn for attention, all right? You encounter an intellectual, a thinker, all right, a professor who's just yearning for your attention and to develop a parasocial relationship with you, Right, that person's not going to be a good source for truth.
3: But like Sam Harris, that time where he debated some specialist in airport security about racial profiling, and the guy was constantly telling him, I know that you think it would work, but it doesn't. Like, you know, it wouldn't work.
0: Okay, so every hijacking in the past what almost 45 50 years has been by a muslim so i would i would venture that that's a fairly decent heuristic all right so doing some some profiling right seems to me like uh when it comes to airline safety pretty good idea
3: and the way that you're thinking about it is too simplistic it would be counterproductive for what you're thinking about but sam was just like very very certain that he was right
0: if you're yearning for attention, Leponius, you're not a liar. You're just not a reliable source of truth because you will be so strongly incentivized to say whatever will get you what you most want, such as attention, that you will sell out what is true for what meets your needs.
3: He's done nothing with you know, like managing security, or like, and this person has an entire career on that topic, but, but uh, yeah, and same thing again. You know, with...
0: Okay, you have to understand what are the incentives that the people are operating under. All right, so if you have a prestigious position, all right, you are going to get cancelled if you you know violate certain boundaries of of political correctness. So the experts frequently have prestigious positions. You have to understand what are the incentives that they are operating under, and that can help you you know decide how seriously should you take what they're they're saying. If they will get cancelled for simply revealing basic truths, all right, you should. to treat them with appropriate skepticism, right? Understand the incentives that the people operate. I'm not going to say anything that is going to destroy my life in Orthodox Judaism, right? So if I have a choice between telling the truth, telling harsh truths, and enjoying my life in Orthodox Judaism, I'm going to choose enjoying my life in Orthodox Judaism. Oh, or go. we're not necessarily the greatest, most objective source of truth in the world with regard to you know, anything that could disrupt my comfy little life in Orthodox Judaism.
3: With the lab leak and that kind of stuff. So, uh, but, but I but I think it's wrong to, for people to kind of take somebody liking Sam Harris's content or whatever as an indication that they're a bad thinker because it, it very much depends on what topic and, and how you're taking Sam. Like I, his opinions on meditation are relatively mainstream amongst Western Buddhists. So, you know, <laughs> they <it> just... <laughs> Yeah, that's if you've got an issue with history, you probably have an issue with a lot of Western Buddhism, which I do. But, you know, other people don't. So, (laughs) yeah. But uh, cheers for the question, Michael. And uh, sorry for our waffly answers. I appreciate it. Uh, And Matt, we had a you guys keep posting your comments, Matt included in the question.
0: Okay, let me get another little excerpt here. On how do how do academics make money? All right. This is a, this is a good discussion.
3: Into one of the sense maker types recently, and I know you need to go so much, so I'll keep it very brief, but just uh, they're very nice and the were you know, it was a pleasant conversation except when we we're talking about Alex Jones and stuff, but the, um, there was a part where, you know, I was saying, but look, you know, fundamentally you, you review, view like materialism and reductionism and science as removing the magic from the world, right? Like it makes, it makes it a dull gray, not exciting place to just, just be about material things. And they were like,
0: yes, yes, that's it. You're
3: just, you know, you're reducing everything. And like,
0: David, uh, how's it how's it going, bro?
2: Brucher Shem. Uh,
0: it was an amazing show last night. You're just incredibly honest. It was it was incredibly compelling. Uh, how are you doing the the day
2: after? Oh, thank God, no, nothing uh nothing special.
0: Okay, so it wasn't wasn't too uh, too wrenching for you.
2: Um, no, I, mean, I guess I, I try to be honest with myself, so. I guess just trying to share it didn't uh, change much.
0: Okay, so I was thinking about the topic of how do you develop, you know, a good epistemic network so that you can more effectively distinguish that which is good from, you know, that that, that which is true from that which is false. And you had some thoughts I noted in our little chat about epistemic community. Do you want to share any thoughts?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Are, are you live, actually? Yes, we're live. Okay, because I just can't find you anywhere. I'm
0: on uh, Lucas back on my Lucas back
2: channel. Okay. Um, yeah, so it, it was a little random because uh, yeah, I was familiar with the term because I had originally studied database management, and I guess like epistemic networks, I, I believe, derives from data science in terms of like information uh, integrity or something like that. And then you know, so I, I was looking that up to see what you look what you meant by it, and I saw there's also like a concept of an epistemic community, which I guess epistemic, epistemic just means knowledge, yeah. And uh, so there, there's, uh, um, to look at the name of the thinker that that uh, was the main thinker in epistemic uh, community on that Wikipedia link, but it was b- basically just related to expertise and deciphering. Uh, who expert? Who the experts are? How to get uh, proper feedback? I guess Peter Haas was the main expert from uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst on epistemic communities.
0: But did you have any thoughts on how how one develops a uh, epistemic network so that uh, you have a better grasp on what's true versus what's false?
2: Yeah, I guess there should be multiple methods. So, I, so I mean. Because it's a network, it involves feedback and it involves testing your perceptions against other perceptions and then some sort of dynamic of understanding whose perceptions are more expert or better than others. Not just that you could get feedback from anybody, but uh, getting feedback from an expert. So, if you want, you know, like the various methods of attempting to, to create an expert network and then the likelihood that uh, people are only experts in small fields, so I, mean, I think we talked uh, maybe it was over a month ago about like taking instruction, so we you know we both agreed that uh you know, say so take instruction when you want to know how to do something technical, and so you know epistemic networking and feedback and technical things is more easy you know, because you could say like a technical certification whether someone knows how to uh, run a pro- program or operate some sort of machinery that's easier to decipher it and then just uh, um, you learn from them or get feedback from them as where in life it's much more difficult and then if we eventually bring the conversation to judaism you say well you might have what you call like an expert on judaism as opposed to people of community influence and power and those people of community influence and power may not actually have expertise. And that creates a uh, uh, mixed signals where you have uh, different feedback loops about uh, you know, what you should be doing or how you should acquire the right path or expertise.
0: Yeah. And so someone say with an expertise in Talmud, is not necessarily filled with expertise in areas of common sense and, how to you know apply talmudic discussions to today so someone uh, may you know ha- have a teaching from the talmud or the ongoing rabbinic tradition that if an ordinary orthodox jew applied it to his life it might be an absolute disaster so even though the the torah teacher has one thousand times the torah knowledge of the person that he's instructing his 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 advice, depending on the situation, can be you know completely disastrous. So, knowing Torah makes you an expert in Torah. Doesn't necessarily make you an expert in instructing someone else in a completely different situation that's completely foreign to you. Uh, you know what they, how they then should apply that Talmudic knowledge.
2: A- any thoughts? Yeah, so if you take it back to the. You're the source of the, I think, epistemic networking coming out of computer database management, where you could have reasonable assessments of data quality, where you have all sorts of data coming from various methods and there's algorithms. And uh, it's probably something like the AI and machine learning and like chat GPT use this uh, you know, various technology and probably even the terminology of epistemic networking for, I think the terminology is also data quality and. So in like a Jewish network, it's hard to assess data quality in the in the sense where you were like, Well, I just want to know what the books say, or I want to know some sort of scholarly opinion, or I want to listen to the smartest person, versus well, what do people actually do? Like we were arguing yesterday about uh, you know whether you know we're more valuable as non Jews to Jews from the community and you're like well you could ask any orthodox rabbi and they would disagree but I was like yeah but what would be the sentiment among the common orthodox Jew and you seem to uh, you agree that it's possible that the common orthodox Jew even a sizable proportion would uh, disagree even something that would be consensus among the orthodox rabbis so uh you know, how do you network and how do you weigh those various things where you're going to have one level of expertise, like what's the reason why all the rabbis would be in consensus on this. However, you know, the, the followers of the rabbi, the communities um, would dismiss the rabbinic consensus uh, about it. And you were talking about IQ earlier also, that the extent is, uh, IQ is an indicative of success in many paths, although there's many downfalls to IQ and uh, i think you've mentioned many times it's hard for someone to communicate with someone uh two standard deviations lower so uh you know, most great communicators leaders uh tend to be i don't know maybe in like the 120 to 140 range um because people you know genius level have a hard time communicating to uh the masses so you might have an intermediary someone between like 120 and 140 who could understand what the geniuses are saying, but then be a leader to the masses of um, common people, probably in Hollywood also, that uh, you know, some of the most successful popular people you know, probably range in like the 120, 130 uh, IQ range. And they might be able to listen and take instruction from geniuses that are not able to connect to the masses that uh, the stars are able to connect to.
0: Uh, one thing I notice that uh, people like us have in common with rabbis, with preachers, with, with priests, with, with gurus, with pundits, with yoga teachers, with influencers in general, is that everyone seems to be heavily driven by increasing their own importance. So, you know, rabbis want you to follow their direction, uh, priest, uh, priests and preachers want you to follow their direction, yoga teachers want you to follow your, their direction. Uh, Youtubers and, and pundits and podcasters want you to tune in to hear their perspectives, which you know they believe will help you unlock life and be more successful in life. And so, this kind of leads people to make, you know, a lot of go in a lot of self-aggrandizing directions. So, I think to to appropriately decode people who are trying to have an influence on you, it, it's important to ask, you know, what are the incentives that they're operating under so uh, Dennis Prager can say on his nationally syndicated radio show that we're in a civil war right a non-shooting civil war which of course no no non-shooting civil war is actually a civil war but he's telling you something that you wouldn't see on your own so when when the youtuber or the the rabbi the priest the preacher the the yoga teacher you know tells you about something that you cannot see with your own eyes in in large part it is a is a thrust for increased importance for them because they are the ones who can, who can teach you about the things that you can't see. So, until one recognizes the genre that someone's working in, the incentives that they're working under, uh, it, it's very easy to get, to get caught up in other people's thrusting for importance. And people will use you whether they're rabbis or priests or yoga teachers frequently to aggrandize themselves. They want to hook you in and then, you know, turn you into fodder for their own self-aggrandizement. So it's quite the rare public personality, quite the rare rabbi or or preacher who is able to relate to you you as individual to individual and not just as another number, another viewer, another uh, member of the congregation, another donor, to add to their own sense of aggrandizement. Anything there that you want to comment on, David?
2: Yeah, possibly. I mean, using like the guru, the um Hindu terminology, um maybe people who are good at that live in the moment. So you know, even rabbis, um but you know specifically that you're using the guru the guru, the Hindu terminology might point to something superior to the Eastern teachings of being in the present moment fully. And therefore the person feels that whoever they're speaking to, even though they might be famous or a leader of many people is fully giving their attention to them. And that might actually be accurate that there might, you know, I can see um, actually probably rabbis might be worse at it, um, you know, saying that's probably why the, the Eastern terminology guru is used, but uh, you have know, met many people that I use the terminology being fully present in the moment and appear to be giving their full attention to the individual no matter what the circumstance. And even if uh, you know the person might be famous or you have millions of followers, that the person's like, no, this person clearly uh, you knew and understood me at least at uh, that moment and and I have more to say, but if you had to comment on 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 that aspect of it
0: um i'm I'm still i'm still thinking about this so certainly someone can be in it for self-aggrandizement and still have something to to offer you but it 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 came you know came as a you know very painful series of realizations for me when many of the religious leaders that i most looked up to i i started to recognize that they were primarily relating to people as you know fodder for their own aggrandizement so i'll i'll turn it back to you and i'll i'll think more about what you're saying
2: yeah, I mean, it could be actually it's more con men that would be good at it. Because, like, a rabbi would not likely necessarily be the person who would be there and fully in the moment and giving their full attention to you. Because the rabbi has that, like, the world weighs on my shoulders. And so, obviously, they can't give their full attention to you because they have uh, the worries. And that would come out in the expression of your communications with, like, a rabbi or a business leader or something like that, that would almost be irresponsible for the person to be there fully in the moment with you and uh, not have at least a a decent amount of their attention focused to their responsibilities, as opposed to you may be entertainers that uh, in reality don't have that many responsibilities or con men that could appear to you know just th- they are giving you their full attention but they're using it to trick you because they know that usually people don't have full attention uh diverted to them and they could fool you that they you know this person must really care about me or must really think that I'm uh special and uh I mean, if you had comments on that and what Yeah yeah I'll jump
0: in I mean I think it's absolutely absurd to think that anyone is going to devote their full attention to you I've certainly never they expected that, no, no, wanted that from a rabbi. What I'm talking about is the, the, the charismatic, you know, rabbi who I, I thought was, you know, speaking essentially in the words of God, the words of Torah. And I find out that they are sexual predators, that they are financial predators, that they are predators on people's souls, that they, you know, take advantage of their religious position to screw people over, uh, socially, religiously, sexually, financially and that's that's what you know i've seen that's what i've experienced and that's what i've found disturbing people who were wrapping themselves in the mantle of torah but they're essentially using torah to get laid and paid i don't know if you've had those experiences
2: well I've, I've, a handful of times but no, i mean I mean, god forbid uh most of the rabbis that i, I dealt with were relatively quite dedicated and uh I mean, it might also go back to the point about being there in the moment that dedicated rabbis are communal people. They're always in front of a crowd and they don't really have the opportunity for that type of behavior. And, uh, you know, when you speak to the rabbi, like, you don't, yeah, you, know, you don't expect the rabbi to give your full attention And the rabbi is somewhat symbolic of your connection to the community because the rabbi, I mean, depends on the very, there's various types of rabbis, but like a pastoral rabbi or congregational rabbi um, where the rabbi obviously is dealing with the uh, people all the time, but I mean, corruptions, yeah, obviously uh, you'll comment in Rampart and you'll know, certainly in uh, Los Angeles, it's probably, uh, I don't know if it's worse, but uh, you are know, saying that, that uh, in, in Brooklyn, God forbid, there's uh you know, num- numerous rabbis that have uh, you know, more with child molestation. I would say like affairs, or women um, is less likely because child molestation, God forbid, might be something that they would be more likely to get away with. But even like women in proper behaviors. But uh, I think in the more Heimish communities, um, you're almost never alone. People have big families. There's always eyes on you. And uh, as you move up in the rabbinic communal affairs, you're used to always having eyes on you and uh, improper behavior largely has to be eliminated, you know, the process of character refinement, and, uh, you know, the heart may not be refined, but at least the appearance of uh, behaving properly. Um, you know, Rabbi Balkany, God forbid, I remember him saying uh, shortly before he went to prison, you know, the brother-in-law of uh, R- Ravashkin, who uh, you went to prison for the agro-processors, he said, one moment of pride could bring you down. So when you're a public person, and you always have you're always speaking in front of crowds there's always lines of people waiting to speak to you so on and so on you know that it just takes one thing for you to slip and uh you know so i i I would have to say i don't think that's actually the norm for people in those positions to engage in that type of behavior and another thing
0: i find distasteful for many people in a public position is when they misunderstand the source of their authority so i noticed with a lot of rabbis for example pulpit rabbis congregational rabbis they think that because someone joined their synagogue they are choosing that rabbi to be their spiritual leader and that is not my experience most jews don't don't choose a rabbi on the basis of making that congregational rabbi their spiritual leader they choose a synagogue based on the number of friends that, that go there now a significant number of jews do choose a Synagogue on the basis of making that rabbi their spiritual leader, but I would say they're probably outnumbered ten to one, as opposed to those Jews who choose a synagogue on the basis of you know friends and family who go there. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, so in an Orthodox community, most congregations you know, have board of directors, and the rabbis are, hi- are hired, and uh, you know, the congregation has already existed for multiple generations and, and the rabbi might be charismatic a little bit, but it's more uh bureaucratic and organizational and the rabbi doesn't have all that much authority or or it's within a hierarchy of the community leaders and wealthy people or consensus. And in a larger area like you know Jerusalem or Brooklyn, probably LA, I'm not sure Detroit's probably not big enough that there's not really any charismatic rabbis where people will choose to become a follower of a specific charismatic rabbi where where it's like, I want more than my local synagogue or the synagogues that have to offer. So they choose to seek out charismatic rabbis and those charismatic rabbis build up like a cultish type following. So uh, I was part of a few charismatic rabbis who built up their own like cultish following and had their own events. And some of them eventually built up their own communities. And, uh, you know, with that, maybe became became um, more normalized. I don't know if that's similar like that in L.A., where there are a handful of charismatic rabbis. And if you're going to, like, your local congregations, you're like, Luke, did you hear about this rabbi so-and-so? And then you go to the event, and he has kind of like a cult following. And, uh, you know, people from all different type places are, are uh, you know, joining this kind of like cultic movement.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, people, <laughs> those those rabbis who have the, the biggest following tend to not be particularly bright they don't tend to be the rabbis rabbis thinking about the, the late lord jonathan Sachs. all right we're talking about someone who is middle brow like someone who's far 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 from being a torah scholar just someone who speaks in, in a beautiful english accent and has read a lot of books but is no you know talmud hakim is no at uh, you know talmudic sage and And so, uh, Rabbi, I mean, particularly the Sephardim, you know, follow some really dim, dim rabbis on on YouTube. So, uh, Orthodox Jews, I guess, like anyone else, they by and large, you know, they follow people who are not not the brightest and not the best, but who kind of pump out a message that, uh, you know, moves people. So, yeah, a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews, like, you know, menace Friedman who again no no rabbi's rabbi just you know someone who's uh they got the gift of the gab but uh you know not exactly you know some tamudic sage uh jonathan sachs and then those you know crazy low iq rabbi Sephardic rabbis are on youtube all the time and getting you know tons of attention for you know the inflammatory things that they're saying so uh by and large, I have not noted that uh, you know Orthodox Jews tend to, uh, you know, revere the best and the brightest among the rabbim. Instead, they they go for frequently rabble rousers. Any thoughts, David?
2: Well, this might circle back to what I want to get back to with expertise and intelligence, um, in smaller circles. But you know, for, related to the Orthodox Jewish charismatic rabbis, you know, certainly in the Hasidic world, it would be more about singing an ecstatic prayer and so like in brooklyn or israel like that would include like really cultic things like sitting around in dark rooms and uh and, you know singing and people crying and people giving like you know really charismatic speeches uh fiery speeches and uh you know ecstatic prayer longer prayer so uh you know, maybe la would have you know, like, like you said, a few like a Rebbe's coming to town and, uh, you know, the prayer is going to be ecstatic or you have like a cow minion and, you know, usually people are more reserved and then you're going to go and everyone's going to, you know, get, you know, like you've talked about, you know, all of a sudden there's going to be, you know, everyone's arms is going to be over each other's shoulders and everyone's going to be dancing and ecstatically praying. And you might do that like a few times a year and, and feel energized, but to, you know, so to say, join a rabbi who leads that kind of ecstatic singing and prayer regularly those probably are not your brightest rabbis um but uh but they're there you know within judaism because prayer is such a regular part of it and prayer becomes kind of like dull and repetitive and uh you know so charismatic leaders in orthodox judaism come together from ecstatic singing and uh prayer i don't don't know if you've seen you'd see. yeah yeah
0: that's that's absolutely right the Hasidic rabbis with the largest followings are not the greatest Torah scholars, and the late Lubavitcher Rebbe would not have ranked in his lifetime among the you know top one hundred Hasid uh, Chabad Lubavitch uh, Torah scholars. He he was a man of, of tremendous gifts, but he he wouldn't have ranked in the top one hundred uh, Lubavitch Torah scholars. And so, to uh, the the Hasidic rabbis with with the largest followings, right? They they're not rabbis, rabbis. They're not, you know, great Torah scholars. They're gifted at, you know, creating certain, you know, feelings of, of awe and devotion among their, their followers. But most normal people are not yearning for attention, right? It takes a, a special, you know, there's, there's something kind of usually off about, you know, most people who become famous, whether as a ascetic rabbi or as an actor, there's a, a deep yearning for attention that most uh, normal people don't have. Any thoughts, David?
2: Yeah, so I, I put it back because I, I think it ties back to you know the general thing about expertise and data quality and IQ that in Orthodox Jewish circles, you also have charismatic genius rabbis that recruit very smart people. And I was part of a few of those and they're not like, necessarily like, you know, singing and ecstatic. They're more um, elite groups of nerds that, uh, you know, read books. And, uh, you know, in the extent of, uh, you know, when I was in Jerusalem, I went to Ref Spimeyer Zilberberg, who was, I mean, he was ecstatic and people went and he sang nicely and he spoke very fiery. And he was pretty smart, but he wasn't genius level. Uh, but But he was relatively scholarly and the people who liked him and went to him, were more likely to be more scholarly than their peers. They were the people that in their spare time would have read Kabbalistic and Hasidic texts and it was an intellectual movement. And then, you know, I also went to Rev, Rev. Daniel Frisch, who wrote a commentary on the Zohar and, and Rev Itchy Morgenstern, who had like a little Kabbalah circle. And these were not like popular charismatic movements. They were basically small niche groups of of geeks who who uh, wanted to learn Kabbalah, I, I guess, and, and, and but, but it was more like an intellectual reading circle, although also like meditative, and then people would get together and, uh, you know, try to take chanting and prayer really seriously. But it wouldn't have been something that would have been popular among the masses, and there would have been high barriers to entry, mainly in terms of reading and mastering immense levels of text. And uh, I, I think that would probably relate back to general like epistemic network and expertise in general, where if you're an engineer, a scientist, or maybe even something in the liberal arts, you could confidently say, like, you're just not gonna understand this. Like I'm a smart guy and I spent 10, five, 10 years of my life studying this stuff. I read hundreds of books, I worked through hundreds of problems. Um very few people are probably capable of understanding it. And even if you are smart and talented and want to understand it, you would have to put large amounts of work into it, and therefore you have networks of experts, which would mainly be professional. Because usually in the U.S., eventually you would get uh, certified and credential,ed and you would make large sums of money. You know, Whether it's a lawyer, engineer, doctor, and even if it's like a professor in, in colloquiums of uh, you know small groups. So like on YouTube, uh, you know, like it's pyramidal where um, you could even put in the Greek terms of the logos, pathos, eth- logos, ethos, pathos, where at the expert level, it's almost all logos. It's all instruction. Um, no appeal to, uh, emotion at all, even very little ethos appeal to authority of any kind. It's just straight equation. Information you did the homework or not, you understand what's talking about or not. And if it's like Elon Musk and groups of engineers. Or technology conferences it's really you either know it or you don't, and it's known that the the amount of extreme effort that even great minds would have to spend years of their time to have a comprehension expertise level, and then you have the epistemic network that is relatively small of just the experts and and it's not expected that you're going to have any fame or glory, and you know the the masses probably. We'll never respect you, like, especially in technology engineering circles. And so to say, that's, that's why you make the big bucks. So if you're in engineering, you're saying, well, um. You're like, I'm a geek. I'm a nerd. Um, I might find a fellow circle of nerds and geeks that we talk about or nerd geek stuff that most people would never understand and never care to do the work to understand. But then also, there's you know the way to make money off of it. And then if you do need my service, I'm going to charge you thousands, tens of thousands of dollars for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, I'm just going to do a fairly short show for tonight. So any any final words this evening, David?
2: Yeah, I appreciate the topic. And you know, Judaism is more difficult to perceived expertise as opposed to technical stuff, where it's more like you know, it's more easy to differentiate. If you have a bunch of rabbis and like, oh, this guy's master Talmud and all the, you know, books and Kabbalah text, as opposed to like engineering or some technical thing to say, like, this guy's an expert. Uh I think the engineering and technical know-how and uh I think it's also interesting to, you know, the resignation where you say, well, IQ is predictive, but uh, I'm not sure if I, high high intelligent people are necessarily popular. I think they're more likely... Who fall into small networks of friends and groups, come up with a method to monetize their expertise, and you'll know, then become like elitist and in, in, within an echo chamber. And that goes back to the first point I mentioned where you know, I think a lot of the most successful people might have IQs in the range of like 120 to 130, and they're capable of listening and understanding to the geniuses and then relating it to the masses as where um, you know, the, the real geniuses and experts uh, are almost completely unable to relate. And usually they're lucky even to be able to monetize and have like a network of experts uh, where they could uh, monetize it. And it'd be interesting to compare that to Judaism because I do think you have an elite of um, experts in Judaism that really know the books, uh, you know, like the, the Holocaust rulers or, or you know, people that have been understood to have mastered the books that are more low key, and the popular rabbis that are uh, you know, shepherds to the masses—they're the ones who um, you know, respect these low key rabbis and their scholarship. Is where the masses, without the you know the popular rabbis, uh, voluntarily uh, subjugating themselves to uh, the people who've uh, you know in in theory acquired the expertise. And it may not actually be that way. There may not actually be a proper hierarchy where, of, of that in Judaism. So I think these are you know, definitely uh, interesting topics. And I, I've been researching this, what I call the science of expertise. And uh, you know, this question of how do you verify that such a thing is expertise? How do you market? You could say like IQ, he's measured, he's smart. But the, the difference between like Alexander technique or something like that, where there might be a certification process, a test, and someone who you know, some reasonable method to to differentiate how well you know, the the levels of knowledge and expertise are on the issue. So uh, this you know definitely one of the more interesting things I find to talk about.
0: Okay, David, uh, great to catch up with you. We'll do it again another evening. So take care for tonight. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat I just want to play a little bit more here from decoding the gurus talking about how do academics to me, make their money. It's
3: just like a little bit. The one would be lovely if it was full of fairies and and demons and you know like wizards conducting magic in caves. But it's not real. That's the problem. So that's why I ha- have to spoil the fun. But yeah, but so that, I'm not saying Francis Collins wants like wizards and dragons to be real. But just there might be some parallel in some way there.
4: <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the things that I kind of learned is that like not all questions like you can pose a lot of questions but just because you can pose a question doesn't mean that it has like an answer like it like it like you, can, you can, and it may make intuitive sense that it should have an answer like you can ask what happened before the big bang you know now it you, know, but you right. can't yeah but, but but you know if whatever if the current models are correct then that's just a an ill-posed question it, it actually the question doesn't make sense so probably a lot of these questions like you know what's the nature of consciousness it's probably just a badly a question that doesn't make sense that you it feels like it, sh- it should be answerable to us but it, it just isn't you know it's not a well-posed question
3: yeah because one thing i think matt and i have come across is like are you're willing to tolerate that, like, I feel a little bit that some people that lean towards spirituality uh, want there to be a purpose and a meaning and a, you know, like something special. What well, tolerance the for
2: disconnect, maybe. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> they don't want it to just be this. <laughs> like,
4: like that's not. Connect. Well, like, I always want to. That's why I'm having trouble learning. <laughs> Going back to uni and learning <laughs> because I, I keep going no I, I find there's a typo here there's you know there's just i just can't put it in my brain i've got to actually make room for it in my brain <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah i'd search, mm-hmm. the search the search for meaning is, is certainly intoxicating. don't come to us don't come to us for meaning that's no. not that,
0: that's the what we can't
4: yeah, for <laughs> I, I had a whole lot of questions about how academics make money
0: <laughs> look if you're thirsty for meaning that's a big warning sign that something's terribly wrong with your life you should be able to get all the meaning that you need from your family not your family, your extended family, your your friends, your community, uh your your interests, your social circle, your your profession. Right? Once, once you've got this deep thirst for meaning, it's a big flashing warning sign that something's really wrong in, in your life. And people who come along and are promising you meaning, uh they're just as likely to do you harm as good. Oh, that <laughs> is
3: that podcast? Is that... No, oh, they, they don't they? make money from podcast. Not enough, but they. They make money from salaries. Yeah, we get paid
4: with yeah, it's mainly the salary from the university. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the majority of them, don't get paid that well, but they yeah. that it's like I'm, sal- I'm. doing this other external work. I'm just signing the contract today for whatever, and they, I just give all the money to the university, and then they, <laughs> <laughs> then they use it to pay my salary a little bit. So okay. yeah, it's yeah. yeah so that's not, that, that's I'm how normal like, academics live, but not get so. money from. They're going to get looking for grants for the uni and yeah, oh yeah, I was just talking and about research get, funding. It, yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. But, so,
3: but but Matt, the like the research funding or the the grant thing can like can give you extra money, but in most occasions is for the project. And if it's paying you a salary, it's buying you out of your university salary. So like you don't need to teach for X amount of years, but uh, because you give the university the money to hire someone else um to
4: replace you. So yeah. yeah 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 basically yeah the, yeah you work for the university when you get grant money technically it all goes to the university but then you get to use it to do some research or the university might use it to pay your salary or pay for a postdoc salary or something i mean as adam said they're badly true in the u.s where the salaries are often just for nine months and then the other the other ones get think well i mean, i don't know maybe it's not that bad I, but that's not how it works in australia but, when
3: people say yeah, that candy got 10 million from like jack dorsey which he did but he didn't get it right they view that as candy got given a 10 million salary he didn't he got like a 10 million endowment for a center that he set up i'm sure that could pay a salary for you know x amount of years or whatever but like assuming he's got postdocs and like you know university overheads and stuff it actually ends up being much less right you can make a lot more from just being a, a guru selling supplements than you can in most academic things but like candy probably makes enough from like public appearances and speaker fees and if you're a celebrity but, academic
4: it's different yeah i, I think that might yeah, yeah it's
3: john carroll or somebody like that might have a different deal
4: yeah, he's a pretty big deal. Hey, I listen to a lot yeah. of his stuff. Pretty he good? Yeah. He's all
0: right, I think. Yeah. Do I think that the elite derive their sense of meaning and purpose in life from community, family, and friends? Well, precisely because the elite are extraordinarily talented and gifted at things, they have much less need to get their sense of meaning from community, family, and friends. But most people are not extraordinary painters. Most people are not CEOs. Most people don't have jobs that, that fill them up. Right, Most people do jobs that they are particularly fond of. But if you're an elite, right, you have millions of dollars, you fly all around the world, you get to pursue your hobbies, you get to socialize with, with fellow elites, so they have much more access to these more esoteric sources of meaning, such as job, status, you know, going to parties with other power players, feeling like they're influencing the world, that they are making a difference in the world. Most people can't realistically... Believe that they're making some significant difference in the world, but if you're elite and let's say you have the ability to give away millions of dollars, right? You can have many, you know, opportunities to, you know, fill yourself up with your pursuits, with your hobbies, with your with your passions. You can have all sorts of opportunities that uh, ordinary people just won't have. it's he's, he's,
4: he's very relaxing to listen to.
0: Um. So yeah, so most people get their their system from their community. If you're an extraordinary YouTuber, if you're an extraordinary podcaster, you're an extraordinary painter or writer or athlete or dancer or choreographer, right, you can very likely get a majority of your meaning from your extraordinary talents and abilities. But most people can't even delude themselves into thinking that they have extraordinary talents. Or go. Most people get their sense of meaning from their family, extended family and community. Now, if you have a one in a million talent with writing or painting or YouTubing, then you'll very likely get your meaning from
4: there. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, but I think the money is really important. Like the money, like I, I've noticed this in just seeing how other people, for whom being a public personality of any description is their main source of income, then it totally, understandably, drives their decision making. And if you want to ask why mm-hmm. did why did Lex Fridman straight away invite RFK Jr. onto his podcast, it's it's all about. It's because he's, he's all about making his podcast mm-hmm. as big as possible. And he does that by getting whoever is in the news at the moment, whoever's a controversial figure, uh, on. Like, that, if you want to understand their behavior a lot of the time, it's just that. And I got to go to my meeting. I, it's about research money, actually. So, yeah. It's very important.
3: <laughs>
4: okay, that's it. Shabbat shalom. Bye bye.